Today's scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This is the word of the Lord. Again, good morning. Welcome. All right, let's get the joke out of the way right now. Jimmy went out of town and decided to get the youth pastor to give the sex talk. All right, we're there. We're good. Okay. You know, it's funny, we, we laugh about that, but, but there's actually both positive and negative realities behind that laughter, right? I don't think the church talks about sex enough. We definitely don't talk about it enough when we think about how incredibly integral it is to our humanity, when we think about how much scripture talks about it, when we think about how pervasive it is within our culture. We definitely do not talk about it enough. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. We use this illustration, you know, quite a lot when we talk about things. Um, there's an on switch. See, last week Jimmy didn't have it. This week, on switch. There we go. Um, if you've ever seen a country road with ditches on either side, I have. Uh, when I was in college, I actually had to go, uh, was blessed to go to a wedding. Um, and this wedding was in rural Florida. Um, believe it or not, you think about Florida, where I'm from, with beaches and things. No, a good part of the state of Florida looks a lot more like Georgia than it does Florida. Sometimes I will tell people that I'm not from Florida, I'm from Georgia-bama, because there you go. All this being said, this was interesting because I had to go to this wedding in the middle of a hurricane. And so if you can imagine a road like this, but instead of there just being water in those ditches, it was water that was pouring down from the sky. And this uh, sad Google Map GPS that I had had led me into the middle of a field, um, which I think probably was a cornfield with a tiny little road in between it. I veered off the road and I went into a ditch. And my little geoprism at the time, with its incredibly powerful V4 engine, um, I remember trying to get out because there's no one. I mean, like, it, it's, I'm going to a wedding, right? I'm not going to some other thing. So it's going to be a good, like, three hours before anyone looks around and goes, where is Steve? No one's asking. I'm not doing the wedding, you know. So anyway, I'm in the ditch. I gun it. I turn it hard. And wouldn't you know it, just like the illustration often goes, this actually happened to me, I go out and I go into the other ditch. <laughs> I did make it to that wedding with about 30 seconds to spare. Literally, I walk in the doors and they have to reopen the doors for me. So I go in and everyone looks back at me thinking I'm like the bride. No, I was just a very, very wet guy college student. Um, I say that, though, because I think that is a great picture of the church and how we have dealt with this topic of sexuality. Sex is a big deal 
And like I said, it, it, it consumes us. We struggle with it. There is so much sin and brokenness in our world around it. And yet, as a church, we often can overreact. We can autocorrect, overcorrect. And we, we move ourselves from one place of fear, of brokenness, perhaps even, even good, right fear. But we turn ourselves into another place that is unfortunately often just as broken. So I'm very aware as we move into this text this morning, continuing on trying to deal with a lot of the different topics that the book of Proverbs presents to us, I'm very aware that for many of us in this room, it's hard to hear a sermon about sex. It's hard to hear a sermon about sex perhaps because you are in a place in your life where the way in which you are able to express your own sexuality is not through a sexual relationship. You are young or you are very old. You have a medical condition or you are simply unmarried or you are widowed or you are divorced or you are in a marriage, but, but things are hard. I get that. And those are very, very personal stories. But I also understand that because of the history of the church not always dealing with this topic well, it can be very tempting to just turn off God's word at places like this and go, whatever it says, it doesn't apply to me or it's going to be bad. And so I am checking out now. I will see you again next week. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I think God's word has something to say to all of us this morning. Even more so, I think it's very important to note that in the history of the church, as we have not always dealt with this topic well, perhaps the place we have dealt with it worst, most poorly, has been in the area of female sexuality. I grew up in the 90s in um, kind of the height of what's considered evangelical purity culture, it was rough um, in a lot of ways, and we could, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But, but a lot of individuals are just now unpacking some of that narrative. These are two separate researchers, Sheila Gregory and Rachel Welcher, who both separately in these two books that I would both recommend to you, they're wonderful, wonderful books, separately looked at over the past 70 years the top Christian books on sex and sexuality. These books collectively, about 20 of them, have sold over a billion copies. And they created a rubric separately, mind you, and, and, and sent this to a number of Christian counselors in America. And the results they found were startling. That of a, of a, of a reading of these books, these Christian counselors said that they would moderately recommend less than half of these books that have sold billions of copies to someone wrestling with sex or sexuality today. This is a hard topic for us to talk about. I'm very aware, and the, the reason I wanted to, to, to make that point, I'm very aware of where we are in Proverbs right now. If you remember from the last few weeks, if you've been tracking with us, Proverbs often uses a rolling metaphor or illustration of the difference between wisdom and folly being presented as the difference between two women, lady wisdom and lady folly. 
It's a good metaphor, and it continues on throughout the text. In some ways, it's more than a metaphor. Specifically here in Proverbs 5, what we're about to unpack, it is more than a metaphor. Because Proverbs, while not solely, is a part, as Jimmy talked about last week, of a tradition of kind of the, the elite of society passing on wisdom to their children. Now, this is a big deal. This isn't just something that is elitist. It is just quite honestly, you want the people who have most power and influence in your society to be the wisest people. And so obviously, you, you actually want to celebrate that this young king or future king's parents are spending time investing in him. Well, one of the things they invest most in him is the fact that he will be picking a mate. He'll be picking a partner in life. And as many of us know, the choice of a partner, the choice of a spouse, of a mate, of a sexual partner even as well, has incredible shaping potential for us. Even more so if you are a guy who possibly has the looks, definitely has the money, definitely has the power to get anyone at all. So it is, it is a very, very big deal for this young king or young future king to pick rightly. All that being said, it might be difficult as you read the book of Proverbs, especially for the ladies here in the room, to be presented with this image over and over and over again of the sexual temptress, of the scary woman, the woman who in her womanness is a threat to the young king. And I think it's images like that, they are rightly in Scripture, and we're going to unpack why. But they can very, very quickly and easily be twisted wrongly. So we move forward with great caution. Let's pray in light of that caution. Jesus, please, please, please help only the words of my mouth that you would wish it land in the hearts and minds of people here today. Please, Lord God, help us to listen, Holy Spirit, with your ears, to hear your grace, your truth, your healing words, that you would call us all to greater holiness and faithfulness and joy. And that you would help in your word break down the negative stereotypes, the negative histories, the negative feelings and emotions and experiences we have had. And that you would present us whole before you. Whole both because you have bought us, Jesus, with yourself, with your blood. But also whole because you are building up in us. You're building us into the image of yourself. You are healing us. You are making us what you always intended us to be. More and more and more fully those in the image of God. May that be so this morning we pray in your name. Amen.
Socialist, uh, socialists, wow, sociologists <laughs> talk about two elements of sex uh, quite often, two components that I think are worth us talking about as we move into this passage. One is pleasure, and the other is connection. And we could use a lot of different words for that second category for connection. We could talk about community. We could talk about covenant or commitment. We could even talk about procreation. We could talk about childbirth in that as well. All of those pieces kind of rolled together. If you're a math person, you could almost think about these as two axes of an X and Y axis, thinking about these components of sex and sexuality. Something that is, uh, I think, difficult for many of us is that our culture has largely focused only on the axis of pleasure. More and more and more in an individualized culture, we hear a narrative that says we are animals, to be honest. We are individual beings, and these individual beings, we have needs, and among those needs are physical needs, and among those physical needs are sexual needs of release and of connection, and if we do not fulfill those, we are somehow denying a piece of ourselves. This narrative plays itself out in the television that we watch and in the music that we listen to and that our children listen to. It plays itself out further and further and more and more in the stereotypical pictures of what a good man or a good woman is. For instance, we might think a hundred years ago that a, a good man was a man who was focused, who was a family man, who was committed, who could um, have one woman his whole life. There's a famous scene in a movie you may have seen called Secondhand Lions in which Robert Duvall, who is uh, in the process, even in his 80s, of beating up a whole gang of young ruffians, he takes this one young man by the throat and explains to him that he has fought in multiple world wars, killed many men, and has loved only one woman his whole life with a passion that a young fool like him could never hope to understand. Compare that with much of today, a vision of manhood that is much more like perhaps followers of a whole number of different individuals on YouTube today, where People uh, like uh, Andrew Tate, who has millions of followers, a man who has been convicted of himself prostitution or, or, or running prostitution rings, nonetheless gives millions of young men every single week advice on what it means to be a good man. But this is not only for men, right? This is women as well. We see a transition from a, a picture of a woman that, let's be honest, we could have some critiques about, right, as only the uh, young, kind of naive individual who is at home having children and uh, cooking and cleaning and then meeting her husband at home with a pipe and slippers and a good meal, rightly critiqued, right, but also now into the kind of post-Carrie Bradshaw sex in the city approach, the individual who has complete autonomy 
and who can go out and find anything she wants. And because of her money, because of her status, because of her freedom, she can be whomever she desires. Ironically, this picture, sociologists are telling us, is killing us as a society. I love, I say I love, I find fascinating places where uh, non-Christian or non-Christian leaning studies show us what God also talks about in Scripture. It's a form of that common grace that um, Jimmy talked about last week. Studies are overwhelmingly clear today that pornography is absolutely destroying young men. That right now there are entire companies who are beginning to market aggressively erectile dysfunction drugs for 20-somethings, specifically because they have already become completely numb to the idea of sexuality and sexual pleasure. Donna Freitas is a a Catholic researcher at uh, Notre Dame. She did an incredible study in the mid-2000s of hookup culture. And if you don't know about hookup culture, just think about any college campus and kind of the, the sexual freedom that lies there. And in her study, she interviewed uh, over 5,000 young people who were sexually active on college campuses. And she talked to them about their, their hookups, their kind of one-night stands, their kind of free sexuality. She found some startling numbers. Of those 5,000 or so interviews that she did. And these are not just kind of, this is not just some sort of statistical. This is qualitative research, which means she spent hours with each individual talking about these situations. She found that 23% of those individuals talked about their sexual experiences, in her words, like doing the dishes. There was something they weren't even looking forward to. It was so expected of them by society that they did it, they moved on with life, but there was no transcendence. There was no wonder. There was no pleasure, no delight. Even more damning was this. 41% of that group saw their sexual experiences as having a negative or extremely negative effect on their mental and emotional health. This means literally two-thirds of the college students across seven different universities that she interviewed saw sex at best as a chore and at worst as literally doing harm to them. And yet they kept on and kept on and kept on. I find that so staggering because often, and again, it's, it's not a bad thing, In Proverbs, we sometimes see this image of the sexually aggressive woman as the image of Lady Folly. You can see this especially in places like Proverbs chapter 7 and Proverbs chapter 9 as something, this this idea that the young man needs to shy away from. But look at Proverbs chapter 5. In the first few verses of the text that Tom didn't yet read for us, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. 
But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. I think sometimes, and rightly, we get angry at a culture that is extremely active sexually and is pushing us, pushing our children, pushing our grandchildren in a sexually deviant manner. But I love how Proverbs 5 here gives us a picture of empathy and sadness and grief even more than anger. Our world is lost. We are lost. We are broken as a people. I think in this place especially it is helpful for us to see and recharacterize a society not as coming for our children, not as coming for us, but but rather as as so sadly misled. I think fewer people than we think are out there going, I want to hurt someone else. And they're more saying, I am hungry for intimacy. I am hungry for delight. I am hungry for joy. And the sad reality is they are completely misled on how to get there. And their answer to trying is not, let me try something else. But it is instead, let me keep going more and more and more with what my culture is telling me is wise. Which is that if I have a sexual problem, it is a problem of technique. It is a problem of medicine. Maybe it is a problem of connection, and it's a problem of finding the right partner. But increasingly, our culture is even taking that out of the equation. Freitas goes forward and has uh, taken a subset of those students that she interviewed with hookup culture and then looked at them a decade later and found that, again, as we would think of as being wise, the increasing number of sexual partners that an individual had did not result in someone who was more capable of connecting to someone, who was more capable of pleasing someone, who was more capable of loving someone well and remaining devoted to someone, but who actually had a more than three times higher percentage of failed marriages. That individuals, especially young men who looked at pornography and, and kind of embraced the sexualized culture were four times more likely themselves to commit assault or abuse on someone else. Here's the thing. I throw all that at you, but I want us to caution something. I need to be cautioned myself at this. It's really, really easy, especially with something like that, to adopt an I told you so attitude, right? I mean, of things that we debate in conservative Christian circles, the idea of sex before marriage has historically not been one of them. 
Now, I think people of my generation and younger might be. It's worth us talking about that. It's why I share statistics like that with our young people, because it's really a hard sell just to say, hey, God says don't do it, okay? We're good, great, awesome, all right, let's move on with life. And to be honest, I want to be, I be loving to our young people because, I mean, when you think about it, in 1960, the average age of marriage for a man was 22. The average age of marriage for a woman was 21. And the average age of puberty for both of those groups was around 12 or 13, which meant if I was a youth pastor in 1961, I would be having the abstinence talk with a bunch of young people. And I would basically be saying, hold out, you got seven or eight years. Today, average age of puberty for a young woman is closer to the age of 10. Average age of marriage for a young woman in America is 29. In Atlanta, closer to 32. That is not the easiest sell, right? To say, okay, 22 years. Let's go, guys. Here's what I want to speak to us, though, about. We see in Ephesians 5, a passage many of you are aware of. If not, you've heard it preached about marriage or you've heard it preached at weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish that she might be holy and without fault. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Usually when we talk about sex, we move very quickly to marriage, and usually when we talk about marriage, if we're not in sort of super practicalville of, you know, making marriages better, which is an important role of Scripture, we're specifically talking about a third axis, a spiritual Axis, a discussion of sex and sexuality and marriage as being a representative of God and representative of God and his love and devotion to us. Now, this is a good and right thing. Sex is presented to us as a picture of God's desperate, passionate, overwhelming love for us. It is a picture of oneness. Now, on one hand, we want to make sure that it, we, we see it's not the only picture of that. Again, if you were someone here who's, again, saying, Steve, you told me not to turn off, but now you're saying this is the picture of God and his love for his church. No, because Jesus never had sex. Paul, as we know it, was unmarried. So many individuals in Scripture were not sexually active and yet were incredible at imaging God, much less Jesus, the image of God. We see all relationships, all drawings of connection and community in Scripture are supposed to be God-shaped and are supposed to further conform us, whether that is the church as a whole, whether that is the local expression of the church, a place like in town, whether that are the godly friendships that we see in Scripture, or whether we see that as Marriage in all its other aspects, all of these things are supposed to be drawing us farther up and farther into the image of God. But sex is one of those. 
My fear, and the reason I think that often as a church, that autocorrect, we are so afraid of the brokenness of sex and sexuality in one place that we autocorrect to the other, what we end up doing is we take these axes here and we create a hierarchy. And we say pleasure exists on this one level. Yeah, you know, we can kind of talk about that as okay, especially, you know, we want honeymoons to be great and we joke about newlyweds. But then we talk about connection and then we talk about spirituality. What I want to tell you is this. I think Proverbs 5 shows us that that is a very incorrect reading of Scripture. We need all three of these axes to be part of our theology of sex. We need all three of these. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. I promised I would not be crass, but we are not reading Song of Solomon here. This is Proverbs. I will let you do with that imagery what you will. But there's a reality to how sexual a passage like this is. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful toe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It is very easy for us as we set up this hierarchy to put pleasure down here, connection here, spirituality here, and to move very quickly towards this reasoned, rational, enlightenment, almost Gnostic idea of physicalness. It's one of the things I love most about this passage. Look at that last verse there on the screen. This is verse 19. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. If you have your Bible, look back at the same chapter, Proverbs 5. Look at the last verse, verse 23. Verse 23 says this after switching back again and talking again about kind of the, 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 the adulteress, the, the woman who's out to get the son. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. In Hebrew, the word you see as intoxicated there and the word for led astray, exactly the same word. Proverbs 5 is discussing, is describing a committed sexual relationship between a man and a woman in marriage in which their sexuality, the woman's sexuality, mind you, leads astray the man. And that is presented as a good thing. What I propose to you this morning is that these three axes are universal aspects of humanity. Pleasure and connection and spirituality are all a part of who we have been made in the image of God. If you are married today, even as I want to so carefully move into a space of saying, we are also incredibly broken and we need help. This is why we need to talk about this more 
as a people of God and not regulate it to only experts who don't come at this from a Christian perspective. Nonetheless, our sexual pleasure matters. Scripture wraps it up in connection and in spirituality. Your experience with your spouse is meant to grow you closer together. There are literally neurological hormones that are released during the act of sex that connect you with the person you are having sex with. This is why Paul can write later in the epistles, are you crazy to go sleep with prostitutes? Obviously, you unite yourself to them in more ways than one. When we regulate sexual pleasure to something that young people can talk about and older people have moved past we are actually bankrupting our own relationships. We are actually driving out something that God has intended for all people who are married together to experience as a way of pointing us to each other and to him. It is not something for the young. We hear this in our culture all the time. We hear about couples who want to spice things up or who feel like their marriage bed is dead and all of their responses are to some outward thing. Well, here in Proverbs, we see this beautiful picture. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That statement there does not mean, hey, 22-year-old, remember last year? When you got married at 21, there's the wife of your youth. No, this, is, this, this statement here, this phrase, in the wife of your youth, is actually a statement that this father or mother would have said to this young son to remember when he's old. The wife of your youth is someone, fill in the blank about what you think is old. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but that should matter to us. We don't talk about this enough. It means we have to erase this taboo. Now, one more time, a lot of you are cursing me in your heads right now because you aren't at a place where sexual, physical pleasure is something that God has ordained for you right now or maybe ever. Here's what I want to say to the church. If we are all sexually broken, we are all not that which God wants us to be. And if Scripture further actually says that someday sex itself will not be the greatest expression of the image of God, Jesus talks about heaven and talks about the new heavens and the new earth as a place where people will not be married nor given in marriage. I don't believe because he doesn't like marriage enough. I think it's because there's even better things coming. But because of that, we as a church, in erasing the taboo, the answer is not to talk about sex less, but it's to talk about it more wisely. We need to be able to speak to all of you who are not able to have sexual relations right now in a God-glorifying way and say, you are still embodied people. Your body matters. Your body images God. 
You are not a brain on a stick, and we suddenly discover genitals again when you get married. We need to have those conversations. We need to be able to have conversations about connection and community that say we're not a holding ground. The young adult ministry is not a holding ground for people until they get married, and then they actually are a part of the church. The young adult ministry is not a dating pool that then moves people into some hierarchy within the church. As married people, as people with children, as people who are widowed and divorced, we need to seek connection everywhere in a way that glorifies Jesus and reflects our Trinitarian God. I need, as a dad of five kids, to have people who are not married in my children's lives and in my life because they have something to teach me. Because my family community is better with them in it. In an increasingly individualistic society, we have to fight against this and say that the gospel, Jesus coming and dying for us, is not a singular thing that says he died for you and you and you and you, but he died for his people. And we embody that. We need to commit to that connection. And I do believe, and I say this with great trepidation, in a country where marriage rates are falling and in a country where birth rates are falling, I'm afraid to say this because I know there are a lot of really faithful people out there who really want to get married and aren't. And I'm so sorry. And again, we need to hold that grief and that joy with you. But we also live in a society where people often don't want to get married. They think they'll be better if they don't. They think they'll only get married when they make X amount of money and own Y number of houses and pay off Z number of loans. And, and that can't be the case either. We need to be a church full of healthy marriages so that people can see that healthy marriages are possible. Anyway, soapbox for another day. It's very easy to hear something like this and hear it very topically as we move to the table to go, where's the gospel really in this? This works well sort of as a seminar or a counseling thing, but if your sexual identity is integral to who you are, and your sexual identity is broken, whether you are married or not, whether you are young or old, whether you are healthy or hurting. Jesus came to die for all of it. He did not come to die for your heart. Leave your body behind. He did not come to die for your sexual sins, but then leave you in this Again, Gnostic neutral brain place that says the church never enters into this again. Jesus, controversial to say this, but a sexual being in the sense that he is fully human and fully God could live a holy life as a sexual being and die for you and for I, for all of us. If you are married, 
if you are single, if you are young, if you are old, wherever you fall in any of this conversation, God loves you. He sees you. He died for you. And we can only talk about things like this with hope because that hope is certain.